Hey, everybody, welcome into another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Danny Matrenga, and today I'm joined by Jessica Raymond. She's a nurse practitioner. She works with Merrick Health, the company that I use to run some of my preventative health labs, get a look at my thyroid hormone, sex hormone binding globulin, testosterone, estradiol, estrogen, luteinizing hormone, vitamin D, my inflammatory markers, my cholesterol, stuff I do for the maintenance of my health. And we're going to talk a lot about female physiology, the variances between the different phases of the menstrual cycle from the early follicular to late follicular to ovulation to early luteal, late luteal. We'll talk a little bit about birth control, PCOS, menopause, lifestyle interventions, and what you might be able to do to run your own labs, as this is something that you guys have been asking me quite a bit about in the last couple months. So I wanted to get you some information on how you can go about doing that, as well as have a discussion with somebody who I think can bring you a lot of value. So sit back and enjoy. Hey, Jessica, how's it going? Great. How are you today? Very, very good. Thank you for coming on. Everybody who's listening, I'm joined today by Jessica Raymond. She's a nurse practitioner. She's an expert on female physiology, and we're going to be talking about a variety of different things in today's discussion from exercise, fitness, body composition to various hormones and the ways that female physiology is different from men's the ways that it may be the same or similar, what we can borrow from kind of the world of chemistry and physiology to optimize how we perform our health and our longevity. So just so everybody kind of gets a gist of where you're coming from, Jessica, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what got you inspired and interested in all of this stuff? Yeah. So I'm a nurse practitioner. I work as a hospitalist currently in one of our local hospitals here. And I also work with Merrick Health. And I have always loved health and fitness. And what really kind of started me on this journey was after having um, my first child, my one and only child, I have a six-year-old son now. Um, I really knew I needed to fix my health and wellness. I was overweight. I had a few miscarriages. I just, you know, wasn't living the healthiest life. And I knew in order to be the best mom provider, um, partner as I could be, I needed to fix my health and wellness. And it fit, fit perfectly along with um, me being a nurse practitioner. And I just kind of went from there. And when you went through this journey of kind of transitioning to really being focused on your health, on your wellness, what were your primary areas of focus? Were you doing resistance training? Were you doing a lot of aerobic training? What did you do with your diet? Did you maybe make some mistakes along the way? <laughs> of course. Uh, when I first started out, I we had a local gym in our small town and I just went and just started, um, of course, start on the treadmill because that's the first thing you know to do. You go on the treadmill, you start there. And then I just mm -hmm. wanted to be as strong as I possibly could be. And so I started um, powerlifting okay. and I just loved being strong. And I just started with that and did, um, you know, the squat bench deadlifts and ended up um, doing two uh, competitions here in Michigan. And I did well. My second one, I um, got all um, my lights. So I was happy. Oh, with good. That. But, um, of course I didn't like, you know, place anywhere, but it was just a personal win for me, um, coming from, you know, not, um, knowing much about the gym and, and then finally, um, putting myself out there and, and lifting the weights and not just being on the treadmill and moved in that direction. And then after doing powerlifting for a little while, I just wanted to, I wanted to look like I lifted and lifted like I look is what mm -hmm. I started with. And so I, like I transitioned that. to kind of like a power building. So I loved squat bench and deadlift, but I also um, wanted to look like I went to the gym. Right. Mm -hmm. um, of course that comes along with like diet and everything else too. And it was easier just to go to the gym. And when you really dial in your nutrition and really focus on different types of accessories um, instead of just the big three lifts, um, I seen a lot of, I, I enjoyed that transition. And so I like doing bodybuilding currently. That's awesome. And I think that it's a, a nice little jumping off point to talking about how your experience as a lifter, a, an athlete in the gym and your knowledge and experience as a practitioner probably work together to help you create a physique, a routine, a nutritional protocol that's good for you in the long term. What are some of the things that you think a lot of people miss who maybe don't have such an understanding about the physiology, particularly women, when it comes to making considerations about how they exercise? Are there myths? Are there misconceptions? Is there misinformation targeting women when they get started on this journey? Because it sounds like you handled it really well and really used the knowledge you had from your job and your career to, to do this well. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think the biggest myth we always hear and a lot of females here is like, I don't want to look like a man. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're not going to look like a man. We don't have as much testosterone as they do. I mean, we could take some performance enhancing drugs and potentially get to that point with significant amounts of food and lifting and, and taking those um, uh, performance enhancing drugs, but we're not going to get there. We are going to increase our muscle mass and that muscle mass is going to utilize all the extra glucose we have in our body. And we're going to be um, fat burning machines off that treadmill. We don't need to be on there. We can be able to increase our muscle size and be able to um, burn calories even outside the gym. So that was really something I really wanted to focus on my nutrition, learn Mm -hmm. more about that. And it's the continuous learning through social media. Um, I think that's been a great um, avenue to learn and understand ways that we can utilize our physiology and um, inside the gym, outside the gym. And it really makes you have more energy for your family and for your job and um, makes you feel better all around. Yeah, I agree. One thing I think with women's health that is still misunderstood, I think we're moving in the right direction with this. We talked a little bit about how social media has become a place where you can more reliably find some good information. There's there's some bad stuff out there, but oh, there's yeah. also a lot of people making good content. Uh, but one area that I think many women are still not quite aware of or they're interested in learning more about is the way that their menstrual cycle affects their training and their body composition. And can we unpack that a little bit and talk perhaps how the female physiology, particularly during that menstrual cycle, what we might experience during our training, the differences between the phases, if you know, and and go from there. Yeah. So I think it's interesting how females go through their menstrual cycle and don't really understand it. And we can really, Mm -hmm. um, utilize it to our benefit and not think of it as just an hindrance. You know, it's something that happens every month. It's what are we going to do? We have, um, you know, less energy one day versus the other. We have more cravings one day versus the other. We can really use this to our benefit. Um, I mean, men, they come in the gym and some days they are not as motivated others. It goes up and down, but women, we have this cycle that happens that can be predictable Mm -hmm. and we can use that predictability to our benefit. I love that. Looking at our cycle in general, we'll just kind of take, take it basic. I think it's really good to understand like the basics of this. I love it. The basics is what I'm all about. <laughs> right. Let's start with the basics. So generally a 28 day cycle, right? A couple yeah. more days, one side or the other, generally about 14 day is the day of ovulation. Um, and usually generally the, f- the first day of your cycle is the day that you start bleeding in the morning. Usually yeah. that last one to seven days, few days of heavy bleeding, and then it tapers off. And then about day 14, you ovulate. And then day 28, um, if we're not pregnant, we start the cycle all over again. So there's three main players in our menstrual cycle. So we have our brain that has the, um, has the hypothalamus okay. and the anterior pituitary. So the hypothalamus produces what's called the gonadotropin releasing hormone, and it sends a signal down to the anterior pituitary that releases the luteinizing hormone and the, and the follicular stimulating hormone. Um, also men have this as well. Um, the uh, follicle stimulating hormone in men stimulates the Sertoli cells in the testes to produce androgen binding protein. And then the luteinizing hormone stimulates the Leydig cells to produce testosterone. And those two together help with spermatogenesis. But in the back to the female side of things, what happens is day one of our period, um, our body says, okay, there's no pregnancy. We need another egg. So what happens is the egg starts, the um, anterior pituitary sends the um, uh, follicle stimulating hormone. Mm -hmm. This is called the follicular phase of our period, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So the follicle starts to form. um, And then the FSH still continues to grow the egg. And once the egg matures, it starts to put off estrogen. So mm-hmm. then estrogen starts to increase. Once there's estrogen at a steady stable or a steady state for about 48 hours, it sends off that signal to the brain and then luteinizing hormone is secreted. So that luteinizing hormone is kind of like the end of the maturation of that egg. Mm-hmm. And then once that luteinizing hormone um, is secreted, the follicle that the egg is in um, gets secreted. So gotcha. in the ovaries, we have... Um, all of the follicles and eggs that we're ever going to have, we can think of the ovary as like a vault. Yeah. And when we're born um, there, we only have so many um, eggs in our ovary. And when those, when those eggs are over, that's when, um, that's when uh, menopause happens. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So once this egg 
um, is ovulated. Um, the corpus luteum, which is actually the follicle that it came from, stays mm -hmm. there and that's producing the progesterone. And that so would the be the luteal phase. Of yeah. The so then once cycle. we go across ovulation, we hit the luteal phase. And that's when that corpus luteum is there. And the corpus luteum produces the progesterone. Gotcha. And the progesterone keeps feeding the um, egg. And then um, the progesterone increases. Estrogen, estrogen kind of dips a little bit after ovulation. Mm -hmm. Goes up a little bit. If there's no pregnancy, both estrogen and progesterone drop off. And then our period starts. So gotcha. it's kind of, it's a whole process but it is it does but it makes a little bit of intuitive sense so let me make sure that i'm tracking here yeah at the beginning of the cycle in the follicular phase the follicle yeah. is secreting or exposing an egg which is releasing estrogen estrogen stays pretty elevated during this first part of the phase well so in the, between the day like one and seven estrogen and progesterone are on the lower side okay so when the ovary so the ovary has one egg the follicle stimulating hormone um connects with that egg in the fall the egg inside the follicle and continues to tell it to grow as gotcha. the egg starts to mature it starts to secrete more estrogen so gotcha. as you go from like day one to day 14 or day of ovulation the estrogen starts to increase cool. and once the estrogen is at that stable level for about 48 hours or so that's when the luteinizing hormone comes out and tells it to ovulate to come out gotcha oh fascinating yeah. so it's it's so those would probably be the days where your training might be the best is like around yeah. ovulation because you have high estrogen and i've also heard that your testosterone peaks a little bit around ovulation for I, i've heard different explanations of this do we do you have an explanation as to why well from my understanding with the testosterone it just we have um, ovulation because we need to um, make babies, right? Yeah. We need to reproduce. That's why we ovulate. That's what we are, we're supposed to do as humans. So our body is so smart. And what it does, it gives us a little extra testosterone during that time to like make us want to have sexual activity so we can make a baby. Perfect. But um, that's why we can see a little spike in testosterone too. And but yeah, and that. That's just a great window for training then, because I think, it you know, est estrogen gets oftentimes gets communicated as a bad hormone, but it's well, not really a bad hormone. for It's androgenic in itself. Yeah, exactly. So these are, this is that window where, like you said, it's predictable. You might be able to go, okay, these yeah. are the days that I want to position some of my more challenging sessions. Or if I'm working with a coach, like I want to make sure that me and my coach are on the same page about when I'm here so we can really dial it in. And when I'm maybe at the opposite end of that hormone spectrum where things start to kind of taper off in the back end of that luteal phase going into right. like PMS. Cause it sounds like we'll, we'll get back to it. Cause I love hashing it out like this. It's great, yeah. but it ramps up slowly estrogen. Yeah. Then you get a little bump of testosterone and in those first 14 days, you can probably train pretty good, but mm -hmm. then things start to shift and these hormones kind of bottom out in the luteal phase. Correct. Right, right. So when you're on your period too, the day one to, we'll just say like one to five, one to seven or so, mm -hmm. um, those days are estrogen and progesterone are on the lower side. Okay. And so this is before we're going to reach the late, we can, so there's the follicular phase and there's the luteal phase. Each phase can be divided up into early and late. Oh, so cool. the early, we can look at it that way as well. So Never the earlier follicular great. phase, um, when we're having our period, um, that's when we may want to like uh, optimize our sleep, nutrition, our rest day, stretching yoga. But oh, yeah. also if we're training at that time, like if we we're training for something, we can't just like just rest and go to yoga. We need to sure. train, right? So during that time, you can continue to train during that fatigue state. Um, if you're feeling with a perceived fatigue at that yeah, time, it totally um, varies. I'd say having worked oh, yeah. with a lot of women, some women can train totally fine on their period. Mm -hmm. They're unaffected. And for other women, it's really a challenge because they get rather lethargic or just the way their unique physiology is going. So yeah. Gotcha. And when we think of that fatigue, we don't have to think of that. We can put a positive spin on that too, by thinking if we're going to train through this fatigue, let's focus maybe on other than like lifting really heavy and, and, trying to hit a PR at that point, let's try to do more, um, like getting a pump. 
Yeah, Focusing, <laughs> getting caught by yeah. doing more reps, yeah. um, looking at technique. And when we train that fatigue state, we know we should be training in general, even men training in general, um, not for the optimal um, environment, right? When we go yeah. to an event, when we go to run a marathon, when we go to lift weights, it's not going to be the perfect environment. So yeah. we can utilize this time during our cycle when we are a little more fatigued and say, hey, okay, I'm a little more fatigued. I'm training for different environments that may happen when this, when my event occurs. Yeah. So you can utilize it and just try to th- you change your thinking about it. Build some resilience, develop a little oh, bit. And that, that resilience, building that yeah. stamina during those phases is something you can focus on. Not that you're just wasting time and you know, you're really doing something during that, that I um, like that. Period. Yeah. So then when you move forward, you, you got the estrogen jumping up, you got the androgenic androgenic effects from that. So this is late um, follicular. We've left late early follicular. and now we're in late follicular. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So the late follicular phase, we're feeling good. We're energized. We have a little decreased appetite. Our blood sugars are more stable during that, that, um, avenue, um, strength training, time to hit a PR. Let's see where we're at. Let's push it. Um, we ovulate, some people may have some abdominal pain, some back pain, some discomfort. We actually increase our basal temp during that, that time, about a 0.3 degrees. Mm -hmm. We increase our heart rate and our resting rate because of that progesterone increasing or resting rate. Um, and our cravings for blood sugars are, or for, um, carbs and sugars, a little bit increased at that time because our blood sugars are a little less stable, not completely off yet, but, um, recovery at that time, maybe take a little bit longer, but we still shouldn't see too much different from that early luteal phase, the luteal phase happening after ovulation versus late follicular phase right before ovulation. Gotcha. So there shouldn't be too much of a difference through there. So that might be the the best training window is late follicular into early luteal. Yeah, I believe right through there. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that would be the best time. Um, And then as you go through the luteal phase, you get to the late luteal phase. And that's when you get like the PMS symptoms. Mm -hmm. So around then there's like that inflammatory response. You have the typical PMS symptoms, um, cravings. And that's, again, where you can re-implement less weights, more reps. I think having that um, variety of training anyways is best for you overall. I agree. And and what we do with my company is we try to, you know, manipulate training in such a way that one, it's productive, and two, that you don't go completely insane. And I think training in a variety of rep ranges allows you to do both of those things, especially if you position it intelligently like this, where you're not trying to go as heavy as possible when you know your progesterone and estrogen are at zero. And maybe you position that closer to where your estrogen and testosterone are higher because you might get better returns. But in the meantime, you don't let your training become unproductive. Right. Right. No, you're trying to utilize the best you can. You have to deal with what, you know, you have to deal with the best situation you're handed. So women are handed a menstrual period that we deal with. So let's optimize what we have to deal with, you know, and not look at it negatively, but spin it around to benefit us. I love that. And then one more thing here in this late luteal phase with, with regards to inflammation, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing I find that's difficult, and I'm sure a lot of this has to do with things like estrogen and progesterone fluctuations, but that can be a really difficult time for women with regards to self-talk and body composition. What's Mm -hmm. going on hormonally in that late luteal phase that leads to this inflammation? What are some things that women should maybe know about their body so they can practice a little grace during that time period? Because I tend to find that's when the self-talk can really be the most intense. Like for for me, like I have a great relationship with a lot of the clients that we work with. And it's a, it's, it's interesting to watch the way they communicate about themselves during that particular phase. Cause I, I would imagine it's challenging men. We get the luxury of kind of just having a pretty stable hormonal environment, but heaven yeah. for, if ours is adjusted, even acutely, we become completely unreasonable. So <laughs> I'd love to unpack that a little bit before we talk about some of this other stuff. Yeah. I think as we get later in our, um, cycles, like in that luteal phase, we just are with our progesterone estrogen at its lowest. So we're just more apt to getting more anxiety. We feel bloated. It just doesn't feel good. We we're a lot of it's that confidence. Like I'm not doing as well as I did like last mm-hmm. week in the gym. Now I yeah. have a lot of confidence. It's so, so close. It is. And so it's really understanding that 
okay, it's nothing's wrong with me. My body has lower estrogen, lower progesterone at this time. This is part of my cycle. This is what's going on. What can I do to help support that? Um, We're changing reps. We're doing maybe a little less weight. We are still optimizing our training by doing variability. We're working in a fatigue state. We're going to be okay. Um, This is going to improve. Understand that this is not a continuous um, uh, negative side that's going to continue on. Um, sure. the weight that we might see is just water weight. I mean, I've done it to myself before I get on the scale every morning and I gain five pounds. Like how did this happen? I, yeah. I didn't change anything. It's just the water that's retaining that we're having. And to help with that, with the bloating too, um, you should increase your fiber intake and increase your water intake that will help with our gut health yeah, and definitely. Be able to decrease that bloating. Um, zinc also helps regulate our hormones. And then also the thyroid cofactors like selenium and vitamin mm-hmm. a, those type of things can be added to our diet at that time to just help us feel a bit better, especially like B6 that increases our neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. Yeah. So those things are maybe more essential at that point. These things should be taken all the time, but maybe more essential during that phase, yeah. just so we can help with that anxiety and the PMS that we that we experience through the low progesterone, low estrogen. Um, I, I I love that. That's very very insightful, and I think that that's something that for pretty much anybody listening, whether you're a male, a male coach, a female, a female coach, an athlete, a hobbyist, whatever you are, like these are good things to know for yourself, for your clients, for your partners, and I think having a little bit of power and control and taking agency and ownership over this is predictable. I don't want to let this become a cycle of training really hard and then getting really down on myself. Like I want to plan for it. I want to take things I know and apply them. This is a really good place to start. Uh, Something that I've seen a lot transitioning to a new topic here, but staying in the umbrella of female physiology um, is an increased prevalence of women coming to me who are trying to manage their body composition or improve their health dealing with something called PCOS. And PCOS first popped onto my radar like eight, seven, eight years ago. I wasn't really sure what it was. Not many people were talking about it. I think a few people in the health and fitness space had inadvertently run into it, run with some clients that were really struggling with weight loss. And then it became something that was much more prevalent, much more commonly diagnosed, much more commonly talked about. And it's something that I think is worth unpacking a little bit because there's a lot of women out there with PCOS who are trying to improve their health, their body composition. What is PCOS? What are some of the markers of PCOS? And then what are some of the lifestyle things we can do to improve the longevity, health, wellness, performance of women with PCOS? Right, right. So yes, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, affects five to 10% of US women, which is about 5 million women. And of those women, if they're trying to conceive about um, 80% of the inovulatory um, women who are infertile is is a uh, cause from PCOS. Okay. So when we look at PCOS, it's diagnosed from what they call the Rotterdam criteria. Um, You have to have two of the three to qualify versus irregular cycles. So if you can't predict when your period is going to start, or if you have some spotting before your period, um, or have a very low or a short cycle, um, that can qualify as a regular cycles. Um, androgenic symptoms like acne or hair growth, or on your labs, like high testosterone, DHEA, those mm-hmm. on your labs, and then also polycystic ovaries on your ultrasound. Okay. Well, those are our criteria. Yeah. And I have found that it's somewhat more common to find like metabolic issues and elevated testosterone than it maybe even is to actually find polycystic ovaries. Not that I'm the one doing the scans or anything, but having talked to women who have had this diagnosis, it's very common to see it flagged with those metabolic panels. So for people who are maybe curious if they do or do not have PCOS or if they want to better manage it, like what is the first, like, let's talk about perhaps medical intervention or thing that they could do with a practitioner. What's the best place to start if you want to make sure that this is not something you're dealing with? Right. I think if you are having a regular cycles, whether you're trying to conceive, whether you're having any problems at all, um, I think starting, what we all need to do is just really start with tracking our cycle for three months, mm-hmm. right? For three months, start there, figure out where you're at. Are your cycles really irregular? Um, if they're irregular, then we need some help, maybe some more guidance with either your family doctor or your OBGYN. Um, just the androgenic symptoms of acne, hair growth, 
If you have any of those, um, that those two will qualify you already for PCOS. Yeah. And so I think, um, initially a lot, we can go through the process of what PCOS is. I think it'll help everyone understand it a little bit more too. Definitely. Um, a lot of it has to do with insulin resistance. Yeah. So, um, that's a big part of it with PCOS. A lot of times you hear, um, people that are overweight. Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at their criteria, there's no criteria that says you have to be overweight. So there's two phenotypes to people that have PCOS. So okay. phenotypes is how we look. Totally. So there's a thin, like you can have PCOS and be thin. Okay. Um, or you can have, you can be obese. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's run through maybe how this works. And then I think it'll help everyone understand it too. Yeah, I think that's great. Because I do think that the archetypical PCOS woman is often portrayed as being larger, heavier, struggles right. with body fat reduction, but it sounds like there's a little bit of a continuum here. And, and oh yeah, there really we need is. A we need to paint with some color. <laughs> so in remembering that PCOS is a hormone imbalance, it's endocrine, um, an ovarian endocrine disorder. So okay. not just not obesity, but it has to do with our endocrine system. There's an issue going on there where we're not ovulating. So again, when we can refer back to the regular menstrual cycle, the pituitary gland, again, gets the surge from the hypothalamus, from the gonadotropin releasing hormone, telling the anterior pituitary to release follicle stimulating hormone. Mm -hmm. That follicle stimulating hormone is to get one egg, to choose one egg out of the ovary to mature. Gotcha. When someone has PCOS, that vault in our ovaries is jam packed with eggs. So when the FSH comes out to tell um, the ovary to produce or to stimulate this egg to grow and to mature in the follicle, several eggs come out at once. Mm. So the follicle stimulating hormone comes down. It sees that there's all these eggs and all the little eggs produce a little bit of estrogen. Gotcha. And remember in that cycle, when we said the estrogen, once it reached a certain steady state over about 48 hours, mm -hmm. then it would stimulate the luteinizing hormone. We have all these little eggs and all the little eggs are saying, Hey, we have all this estrogen and it, it's kind of equivalent to just having one good mature egg gotcha. or one egg ready to go. Um, so the feedback to the pituitary from the estrogen is saying, Hey, we're good. We don't need any more follicle stimulating hormone, but really we have all these little eggs there that are just not mature, not the one mm. that are not the chosen one yet. Sure. And so there's not one that's going to continue to get that FSH to get to mature level. Gotcha. And so since that's happening, they kind of get stuck in this cycle. And so the LH or the luteinizing hormone, and now is telling the ovary to produce testosterone. Because there's no mature egg. It's detecting all these little eggs. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it thinks it's a time that it's not basically. Yeah. Yeah. So it's saying that, um, there's no ovulation. I have these little eggs. So what do we need to do? So the luteinizing hormone tells the ovary to produce testosterone. So the testosterone, um, that's where we're getting our acne from our hair growth, our insulin mm -hmm. resistance, and all those metabolic changes. Gotcha. So, yeah. So it's just kind of this cycle that keeps going on. And what's interesting is that when, um, uh, with, to make it more complicated, our fat cells or adipose tissue also creates estrogen. Mm -hmm. So the, that, so the estrogen from the fat cells coupled with this whole process of the FSH not stimulating just one egg and the luteinizing hormone producing the testosterone or telling the ovaries to produce testosterone all gets complicated. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick second to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And if you're finding value, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media. Simply screenshot whatever platform you're listening to and share the episode to your Instagram story or share it to Facebook. But be sure to tag me so I can say thanks and we can chat it up about what you liked and how I can continue to improve. Thanks so much for supporting the podcast and enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah. And, ha and so being heavier would make it that much, probably more challenging because you yeah, have more, more estrogen, more testosterone, more symptomatic. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. So and that's where, um, like the, uh, weight loss comes into play there too. Um, but for the thin phenotype, um, the females that are thin, losing weight isn't going to help them. Yeah. They need to go to the family doctor and help. Sometimes they get put on, um, um, birth control pills to help yeah. regulate that. I've heard um, that. Because, yep. So we don't have to continuously um, increase the um, 
it's the endometrial hypoplasia that'll continue on too when they don't bleed because they're not having the um, ovulation, so they're not bleeding. Mm -hmm. So the um, lining in the uterus will keep getting thicker and that can lead to the endometrial cancer. So they should be seen and evaluated. Yeah. And so they may have to be put on um, a birth control to manage um, all these hormones. Um, metformin has been used for insulin resistance. Um, and really a lot of it is lifestyle. So just like anything else, any other disease, we really need to focus on our lifestyle changes. Um, really it's dialing that in low glycemic carbs, um, to help with our diet. So we can just start with diet first, lots of the fruits and vegetables, mm -hmm. whole foods, portion control. Um, we can even go to time restricted eating to help with those insulin levels. So when we sleep at night, our insulin levels drop down. Mm -hmm. And so we want to prolong those insulin levels or those low insulin levels as long as we can in the morning. Um, by eating just like um, fats and proteins in the morning and, and yeah. avoiding those carbs first thing. Less insulinemic um, food and pushing it off even if you can. So that window of low insulin kind of stays into the early morning, mid-morning hours. You're, you're almost stealing a few extra hours by pushing off breakfast or pushing off something insulinemic that's going to raise your blood sugar. Yes, absolutely. Um, and really... There's been like, if you search PCOS online, you'll find lots of diets, lots of things that'll help, but sure. really it's going to be, what is the individual going to be able to stick to? Mm -hmm. um, could they stick to a ketogenic diet? Maybe they could do that for a little bit of time, maybe lose some weight. But after that, um, what could they stick to for a long-term? Cause it's not just goals for just their PCOS, it's for their overall health in general, that we sure. need to stick to a good diet or nutrition that um, will be sustainable. Um, supplements that they can utilize are inositol. Um, which is found in whole grains, citrus fruits, shown to improve the metabolic profile, omega threes to um, yep. in or improve our insulin resistance, um, vitamin D, probiotics to help to decrease the inflammation that's associated with it as well, sure. um, maca and um, cinnamon, uh, antioxidants, yep. anti-inflammatory. So those type of things too. So it's really like all these little things that add up. Um, sleep, reducing stress both those help reduce our inflammation and definitely want to know smoking. I mean, smoking in general, we should not be doing that anyways. Yeah. Um, because a lot of times cardiovascular risks are increased with patients with PCOS. Sure. Um, in regards to exercise, the minimum number of minutes per week should be about 150. Now I think yeah. about 150 minutes. I think that's like very, that's like two workouts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. But at least uh, 150 minutes. Um, and because of the cardiovascular risk with PCOS as well, um, we know exercise in general improves our um, cardiovascular risk factors. Sure. So that's part of that insulin sensitivity, um, and decreasing our, um, hyperinsulinia states, um, movement and also with PCOS. A lot of times it's mental health issues too. Like a lot of these people don't realize this until they're trying to get pregnant. And, and I remember when I was trying to get pregnant and had three early miscarriages, I it's it's mentally taxing. It's yeah. very difficult. And can imagine. the gym is our mental relief, right? We go to the gym and we get, um, mental health through going to the gym. So mm -hmm. that's another part of It's another component to PCOS that I think, um, the exercise helps with a lot too. I love that. And I, I do think that those lifestyle interventions tend to work best and having things that you can turn to, whether it's inositol or some of these different supplemental forms of, uh, things you got metformin that you can turn to, but starting with those lifestyle factors, we did touch a little bit about birth control being used as a potential intervention here. But uh, I think that that's a topic worth discussing on its own, which is hormonal birth controls, different forms of contraceptions you have. You have pellet form, I think, which are injectable. I can never remember what that one's called. You have dual progesterone ones, you have the IUDs, you have the non-hormonal IUDs, you have all these different kinds of birth control. And I feel like more now than ever, I'm hearing women talking about changing birth control, getting off of birth control, and you know, it, for various different reasons. But what are some common things or th basics that we should understand or women should understand about how different forms of birth control might affect their body composition might affect their training if they even do? And is it something that they should mm -hmm. be concerned with? Yeah. I think when you start talking about contraception, I think you have to look at the goals of the female. So what are their goals? Are we not looking to get pregnant for a while? Um, are we thinking we'll get pregnant in a couple of years? 
Um, do we have very heavy periods? Mm-hmm. Um, do we have very painful periods? And that's a time where birth control may be a benefit to them with tr- yeah. in the aspect of training. So your period shouldn't cause you to have any interruption in your daily life. So if it causes you not to go to work, if you're not going out to social events because you're having so much pain, we need to evaluate that more with OBGYN visitor or your primary care doctor to look into that issue. So um, sometimes contraception is just so it controls your hormone balance and and gets you more able to uh, feel more functioning in Mm -hmm. life. Um, Now, there's a lot of controversy with contraception, and it does change your hormones quite a bit. Um, so you have to look at the risk and benefits, but for some women, if, if they're not able to go to work, they're unable to work out, you know, the risk uh, may outweigh the benefit and yeah, no, the benefit I, may outweigh the risk too. I think, so. I think it's a great point because there's mm-hmm. been like an exodus away from birth control because some women don't want to use it, which is fine. It's reasonable, but it doesn't mm-hmm. actually eliminate the fact that it's an incredibly valuable intervention and can be really helpful and something that a lot of women really rely on. Yeah. And it's very individualized. You don't want to demonize one thing over the other because some women have to have it and you want them, you don't want them to feel guilty because they're on a birth control pill. Um, If they need it for um, their symptoms, they need it for their symptoms and they will work on, um, you know, any side effects, they'll know them and recognize them and be able to work on them and um, continue to deal with them even after they're off birth control. Um, There is several forms. I mean, there is the combined methods where you get the estrogen and the progesterone. You have the progesterone only, which is also the mini pill. You have the depot shot and the depot shot is the one that can increase your weight gain. And really the studies had showed just about five pounds. Gotcha. What happens when, when women start to take these birth control pills too, um, it's either, you know, their um, later teenage years going to college or starting the birth control pill. And so there's a lot of different avenues or a lot of different aspects that can cause their weight to increase, not just specifically their birth control. Some women, yeah, they start it and they gain weight you know, that this is never a hundred percent, but you have to look at the whole picture too. And and when they start taking that birth control, did they also go off to college and and gain that freshman 15 or, you know, is there something along those lines that went along with it too? Or is their diet Mm. not optimized? Is there, are they not working out? You know, so it's hard to just blame one thing. Yeah. Um, It's a great point because we oftentimes will completely neglect our lifestyle adjustments when we begin taking different therapeutics, different pharmaceuticals, different supplements. And just because you might see like a common uh, communication that, hey, birth control makes you gain weight. It's mm-hmm. not only, it's not always just the birth control and it's not all birth controls and that does not right. make them bad. Right, right, exactly. And with the IUD, I mean, those are more, um, they have um, they're just local instead of systemic. They don't give the systemic effects of the hormones. It's more mm-hmm. progesterone. So there's a non-hormone one, uh, it's co- a copper IUD called Paragard yeah. and then also a hormonal one called Mirena. And there's several other hormonal ones as well. Um, and they may affect your periods differently. Um, the hormonal ones like the Mirena, um, a lot of women I know don't get periods with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with the copper one, they get heavier periods. It just mm-hmm. depends on how you respond to them. Totally. Um, and in the background, of having these, um, the IUDs and some of the uh, pills, you still go through that cycle. Like you can still, like I've had both the copper and the Mirena and you can still feel your cycle in the background. Like I can still feel like I have the Mirena right now. So I can still feel in the background that I'm having more energy during this week. So I can still track my cycle, even though my cycle is not happening, it's still happening in the background. You can think of it that way. Yeah. So you can still, I know some days that I'm stronger in the gym, other days that I'm a little bit less, uh, more fatigued, I should say. Um, So you can still track that, but still get the benefits of either not getting a period um, if you're training hard. Um, But yeah, I think that's a, it all is specific to the female, what their goals are and what they want to achieve. I love that. And we've talked a couple of times now it's come up about tracking your cycle. Do you have a favorite way or a preferred way for doing this? I know there's apps. I know there's journals. What is an efficient way for somebody to start tracking their cycle if they want to begin to leverage it to their advantage? Yeah. So I like to use the um, app called flow, just FLO. Um, it's, I mean, you just think of it as tracking like your calories and everything on there. It's, it's a little bit cumbersome, but the data that you'll achieve from that is very beneficial. Yeah. It's helpful. 
Yeah, it's super helpful. Um, and just helps you be in tune with your body and how it's functioning. It's kind of like that mind muscle connection that we all need in the gym. It's just that mind body connection that females need a little bit more than men. And so by tracking it on something like an app, like flow or, or something similar to that, we're able to understand, um, how best to utilize the gym or, or nutrition during, during our stages. Um, I think that that's just super important to do and it'll benefit us in the long run. I love that. And then one more thing to talk about that's kind of unique to female physiology before we transition to talking more about maybe labs and what people might want to look into if they want to take a more in-depth view or take a more in-depth examination of their physiology. One of the things that I think really doesn't get talked about often is menopause and what happens to the female physiology during menopause. And we've discussed mostly some of the nuances and differences that happen when we go through the different phases of our cycle. We've talked a little bit about how different forms of birth control might influence us differently. And then, of course, there's the last kind of usually less touched on hormonal modulation or adjustment period in the female lifespan, which is menopause. Mm -hmm. And what is happening during menopause? What is the change? I think I've heard a lot of women refer to it as the change. What is the hormonal change that occurs during menopause? Because I think if women can start to take a zoomed out lifelong look at how their physiology works, they'll feel more empowered because mm-hmm. I think a lot of women feel like totally powerless and that the minute they hit a certain age, they're just toast. Yeah. Yeah. And I think empowered is the best word there. Cause I think females feel, don't feel empowered in themselves. And by understanding all this, that's where they, the empowerment comes from knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that'll be very helpful for them. I so like think. how we talked about with the ovary, the ovary has so many eggs. So as we go through our lifespan, we get to perimenopause and we get to menopause. And by the time we get to menopause, there's no eggs left. So what happens is our LH and FSH are are going and they're going and going and there's no eggs. So then we get all these symptoms and there's no egg to produce and that's menopause. Gotcha. So our perimenopausal um, timeframe too is also really important. Now our average age of uh, menopause is 51, but that perimenopause will be, can happen in our thirties. Now I'm 34 and I honestly like didn't think how oh, menopause is so far away. I don't have to really worry about it for a while, but really the habits I'm forming now are really going to help me once I get to menopause and through the totally. perimenopausal um, timeframe. So what perimenopause is that fluctuation in our hormones um, that um, leads to the regular menstrual cycles, the vasomotor responses, you know, with our hot flashes, um, brain fog, sexual dysfunction. So we're kind of getting to that point. And then finally, we have no more um, estrogen or no more estrogen. Um, Our progesterones are low. Um, We have this LH and FSH telling us we need to produce everything and there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. So it kind of we're dropped off, dropped off the map. And so at that point, when you get to menopause, that's when you can start um, that hormone replacement therapy at that time, Um, really leading up to that and that perimenopause. So initially what women should do in their twenties, thirties, develop those habits, those good habits, exercise, good dieting, uh, relaxation techniques, sleep, Mm -hmm. getting that sunlight exposure, direct sunlight exposure in the morning to increase the dopamine levels, finding ways and avenues to decreasing our stress. So when we get to this perimenopausal um, phase, when we're feeling those hot flashes and everything, we can utilize things like, you know, they say black coal hosh for hot flashes, Mm -hmm. increasing our calcium, vitamin D, vitamin D and K2, omega-3s. If we're already doing those things, it's going to make it easier theoretically to go through these phases. It's a great point because I do find having worked with a lot of general population clients who don't even begin exercising until during or after menopause, it's very challenging to integrate habits. Not impossible, but it is more difficult later in life to form these habits. So I think perhaps the best way to approach it, if you know it's coming, which is a physiological inevitability, is to get some of these lifestyle things in check that can ease some of the symptoms and fluctuations. That's kind of what I'm getting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And make it not as it's like, oh my gosh, menopause is going to happen as like doomsday is coming. But no, we're preparing for it. We're laying the brick every day by we're working out. We are 
eating healthy, we're taking our vitamins, we are going to be able to overcome that. And we're going to expect it. And then we're going to check our labs. We're going to watch our FSH. We're going to watch the LH. Once the LH hits above 30, once that FSH is above 30 or above 50, and we're not having periods for at least six months, we're going to be able to start on that hormone replacement therapy early mm -hmm. on. So mm -hmm. we can decrease our cardiovascular risk, our risk of um, heart attacks and strokes. Yeah. So we're going to be right on top of it. And so what we need to go ahead. I was just going to say hormone replacement therapy for menopause is oftentimes something people don't even know is an option, but it apparently can make quite a big difference for some women. Oh, a huge, I mean, it's night, it'll be night and day. I gotcha. mean, it'll be night and day for them and it'll decrease the risk of cardiovascular events. And you have to get it within a certain time frame, within a few years of when you start the menopause. So a lot of times that. people are like, well, I'm going through this. I don't know. Am I in menopause? There's still kind of like a gray area there. So if you're checking your labs, you're watching your thyroid function, your TSH, your free T3, your free T4, watching that LH, watching that FSH, you're going to be better able to predict when that's going to happen. And then so when that does happen, you can get on stuff or get on hormone replacement therapy to help ease you through that and deal with everything else and prevent those cardiovascular risks, um, in moving forward, if you didn't get on any hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. Cause estrogen's cardioprotective. So when you stop yeah. making it, you lose some of those cardioprotective benefits. Okay. And if you're maybe not somebody who's super inclined to use a pharmacological intervention, it becomes that much more important to get the lifestyle stuff really, yes. really dialed as early as you can. And I have heard from many women that, oh, uh, once you hit this certain age, you know, your metabolism just tanks. And there's actually some recent literature that I've seen that shows metabolic adaptations only occur at about a rate of negative 6% per decade. So basically, you're going to lose 6% metabolic output every 10 years. But if you really think about it, that's like 18% decrease over a 30-year period. That's not mm -hmm. unovercomable. So right. even though there might be some metabolic adjustments, it's nothing you can't plan for. It's nothing you can't prepare for. Uh, just touching up on, on labs before we finish, because I think this is super beneficial. And mm -hmm. Merrick is actually the company that I have used to do my labs. I just was going over my lab review yesterday. And like this kind of stuff is interesting, guys, because it gives you some insights. And I figured I'd kind of share what I got from mine. And then we could talk a little bit about what women in particular might want to look at if they're going to get a panel drawn up for performance. But like I looked through a, a standard male health panel, guys, and I got a look at my hemoglobin, my red blood cells, my white blood cells, my platelets, all of the different stratifications of white blood cells that might reveal something like an infection or might reveal something like a parasite or something that would clearly be like, okay, you have something here that's causing an immune response. I got insights about my liver enzymes, my kidney function, my A1C, fasting glucose, things that are really important when you're looking at your metabolism and things like insulin resistance or being insulin sensitive. I got a peek at my cholesterol, a detailed panel where I got to see that I have a good number of the good cholesterol and an in-range number of the bad stuff. I got to look at my testosterone, free testosterone, estrogen, sex hormone binding globulin, my luteinizing hormone, which we talked about today, my FSH, which we talked about today. These things are cool. And I even got a peek at where my vitamin D was at and some of these unique markers like C-reactive protein, for example, that are good for understanding what your cardiovascular risk is. And I've talked to you guys before on the podcast about why I like to get labs, what this stuff kind of does for me with regards to the direction I take my habits and behaviors. And many of you said, well, what labs do I get? What labs should, should I look at? And I really don't know the answer to that. This is just the panel that, that I have gotten and I got a lot out of this. So if you are a woman in this instance, since we've talked about female physiology, let's start with a woman. If you're a woman, what labs might you want to look at and what's the best way to get those labs looked at? Because I'll tell you this, I have never, well, I have attempted to get labs done through my primary insurance. Like my, my, like I have Kaiser, for example, I'll try to get labs done at Kaiser. It's pointless. It's basically a nightmare. It takes forever. If you're going in for anything preventative, it can be quite sticky and slow. So is there a best way to get labs? And then what labs would you recommend getting for somebody who wants to really take a deep look at their health? Yeah, I think definitely the lab panels that we get for females, um, definitely 
we're going to look at your SHBG, the sex hormone binding globulin, the estradiol, your progesterone, your cortisol levels. We're going to look at them. And we like to look at them at day 21 through your cycle too. Mm. So it kind of like, and if it can't be done on day 21, we just like to know like what day it was taken on. So, cause our range is so wide of the estrogen progesterone through the lab panels that we need to be able to know when we have those labs done to help us oh, better yeah. look at um, the estrogen, um, progesterone, LH, FSH, all those. And a lot of them are similar to what the men's panel would be too. So we are going to look at your white count. We're going to look at your hemoglobin numbers. That's the amount of blood we have. We're going to look at your platelets. We're going to look at your liver enzymes, make sure your liver is functioning well and your kidneys are doing well. Your electrolytes are doing good. Your potassium and your magnesium, um, those and your sodium levels, make sure those are all good. Um, we're going to look at um, your insulin growth factor, um, IGF one, we're going to look at that too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with our birth control pills, we're going to look that can inhibit our, um, free testosterone or testosterone, increase the SHBG. So knowing if you're on those pills too, is helpful. And so mm. we can see how they're actually helping or, or hindering some of your lab panels and see if we can cool. uh, improve anything from that route. But it's really looking at your whole, um, panels in general, just to yeah. see how we can optimize your health and, and be able to identify if there's any illness. If you're at increased risk of cardiovascular events, um, like if your LDL is elevated, if you have a high um, lipoprotein little A, um, mm-hmm. your apple lipoprotein B, um, those markers help us look at your cardiovascular risk. So we're able to tell you if, okay, you have a little bit higher risk of cardiovascular events. When I say that, I mean an MI or a heart attack um, or a stroke we can start really implementing and more serious efforts toward implementation of lifestyle um, modification factors um, to help prevent them from the future. I love that. And also I'm sure that that panel includes the thyroid panel. Oh, oh yeah. Thyroid, yeah, the thyroid, <laughs> absolutely thyroid, thyroid, hundred um, percent. That has so much to do with our, meta- our metabolism, yeah. and our thyroid. If we can um, optimize our thyroid level, we can optimize our metabolism. Lots of cofactors too, like selenium, vitamin A, um, vitamin D plays a role. All those factors play a role in optimizing our thyroid's function. And that um, plays along with everything else. So yeah, and all of that would be included. And so the, these are panels, guys, through the company Jessica works with that I've used for labs, Merrick Health. Uh, if they're interested in working with you or following you or getting a lab panel done, where can they do that? Thanks again so much, by the way, for having this discussion. This has been really insightful, really enjoyable. Uh, where can they find you? Where can they work with you? Where can they take uh, you know, themselves if they want to get these labs done? How's that all work? Yeah, we have a website, AmericHealth.com. You can go through there and start the process through there and get your lab panels. Um, You talk with a patient care coordinator and they talk to you specifically about your goals and help you determine what lab panel would work best for you um, based on what your goals are. And um, they get you set up with your lab panels. And then once the results come back, then you talk to someone like myself and we go over them with you and um, give you recommendations regarding either supplementation, medications, lifestyle modification factors you might need and uh, go from there. Great. And if they want to follow you, Jessica, if they want to keep up with you, where's the best place for them to do that? Um, I'm on uh, Instagram under JessNP, that one body, one life. All right, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. We enjoyed the discussion today and we'll have you back on soon. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.